Great. I bring you greetings from paradise. You call it Chicago, but I call it paradise. I'm from Illinois. I've been here in Ohio, obviously, a number of times. Haven't been back here in about 30 years. And you feel like you're coming home again uh, to the roots of the Air Force here in Dayton. So it's going to be a special treat to be able to tour after we get through the few remarks and then some questions and answers later on in the day. Is that okay? I think it's okay. Uh, But I think we ought to start with the notion that because I am from Illinois, I should give you, since this is a historical place, some history lessons about a neighboring state. Uh, Illinois derives from the Algonquin Indian. It means tribe of superior men. (laughs) I was impressed when I learned that, so I made a small sign up, uh, tribe of superior men, and hung it in the kitchen so that when my wife, Myrna, wife of 50 years, by the way, I will be sure to tell Myrna how much you think I have contributed to the marital enterprise. All of you, thank you. Well, anyway, I hung it in the kitchen so that Myrna would see it when she came down in the morning, tribe of superior men. And sure enough, when she came down in the morning, she saw it. You know that serrated knife they use to chop the bread up? (laughs) In very small pieces. And I was elected to take it down to the outer darkness, from whence it never recovered. I was very disappointed, because I never knew my wife was so biased against Algonquin Indians. I mean, it was... Okay, if you think this is going to be a thing heavy on the pathos of the prisoner of war experience, or a recitation of exploits real and, as Sir John Keegan talks about, old military guys who become bullfrogs with real and imagined military exploits. It's not going to be that at all. What we're going to do is try to go down some mental tributaries on subjects that I hope will elicit some questions that I want to become burning in your breast so then you can pin me to the back of the stage with your wisdom and with your interests, and we can have a dialogue. We're not so big in this group that we can't exchange some views. Is that okay? Uh, And if you don't ask the questions, I will. That's easy to do. You already saw how we ordered people around here. I'm not a bashful guy. I got up at 2.50 this morning at Lakehurst, Fort Dix, and uh, and McGuire, that tri-base complex that they've spoke, in order to come here just to talk to you. Yeah. (laughs) Who am I pointing at? And I do so uh, because in this book that we will talk about a bit, uh, this imprint, first imprint of the Pritzker Military Library, and the first learning outcome, by the way, today, is that everybody ought to get online and become acquainted with the Pritzker Military Library. It is a singularly unique institution 
which is telling the stories of and maintaining the history of, if you will, the exploits and the accomplishments of the citizen soldier. An institution, frankly, that I think is one of the great underpinnings of this experiment we call America. It goes back very much to the old saw of Benjamin Franklin walking out of Independence Hall and being queried by a citizen as to what kind of government they had created. And he responded that it is a republic. Sir, if you can keep it. And I suspect that the military underpinnings and the foundation block that it represents as one of the many foundation blocks and one of the many valuable pillars in America is this composite military experience from the citizen soldier that we've had. So I commend the Pritzker Military Library to you. And certainly uh, without them and some very nice people in New York, I wouldn't be up here in part talking about, talking about this book. But I was talking about bias before. And my bias, my bias at the end of the day is just to try to be honest with you, to try to be genuine, to try to put in perspective, at least within my frail capacities to do so, perhaps some of the bigger issues that face us as a nation. And at the same time, use the book as a vehicle to do that because it's meant to be an item of self-renewal, city, state, nation renewal, as well as going back just old stories, if you will. And so if you have a subject that is burning in your breast and you want to talk to it, let's, let's do that together. But to put some coherence on these remarks and to give a little bit of structure, and since we have uh, such a high contingent of young people here, I thought I'd talk a little bit first about education. Then I'd talk about a service program. Uh, my classmate, Press Davis, is going to help me out with this, so, okay. Education is the first thing, right? National service is another. And then we'll finally get over to the book, and then we'll still leave enough time uh, for questions. Is that okay? Again, great to have some very important people here. Uh, Lance Sajan's sister has already been mentioned, class of 65. Guy Gruders was class of 64 from the academy, along with his wife, Sandy, and Press Davis and I were class of 63. This is our 50th anniversary from the Academy this year. Press is secretary of the class. We served on class committee together many years ago. So I feel I'm in the company of, of friends. But let's first talk about education. I think it's a bunch of hope that we need all these engineers and scientists. Anybody else think it's a bunch of hope? Wouldn't we be much better off? With, with liberal arts-based education where we can, I say it seriously because how else do we sift and winnow the ideas that come, come down through the millennia? The people who are inclined to the sciences and to math, you know, we don't need every man Jack to be an engineer or every woman Jill. What we do need is an involved and an informed citizenry, and it starts with you guys. And so I think that the country would be wise, and again, it points back to some lessons in the book, if we reoriented our thinking to the value of a liberal arts education. When Press and I were at the academy and Guy, our curriculum was split about 
uh, with the science subjects and with the liberal arts subjects. But I do it as, as a suggestion that, that the nation will be the better for it. And I think we can take a lot of mystery out of education if we do that. In fact, I believe that we have failed uh, in a fundamental way by not defining a national purpose for education. If you ask people, what's the purpose of the public education system, K-1 through 12, uh, you don't get a coherent answer, or you get the answers that are useless. Well, to educate, to increase learning. I would suggest to you, and I offer this to the young people as well as to their mentors and their teachers, that the purpose of the education system in the United States ought to be to provide the student with the skills and the confidence, the skills and the confidence, to identify and solve problems and appreciate good manners and beauty and beauty. Manners and beauty will take you a long way in life, but if you also have those skills and confidence to take on the challenges of life, the vicissitudes of life, the changes that will come your way. And we all, those of us who are just slightly older, and I want you to know that this haircut, which I had done specially for you today, uh, is elective, right? I don't want you to get the wrong opinion. Uh, but the reality is, to go back to this very serious subject, that you'll get, as fellows older, you'll get beat up for fair reasons and foul. The life brings punishment and reward to us all, and it's how you deal with it that makes all the difference in the world. You've got to keep marching. You've got to pick them up and lay them down. And you find often that it's easier to deal with adversity or with bad stuff than it is to deal with success. So that kind of is the first subject. Didn't expect that one, did you? Good. The second subject has to do with national service and goes back to this foundation block of what it takes to be an American. I am personally distressed, and again, it's talked to a bit in the book, that we don't have some kind of program where the citizen soldier uh, is the norm in America. And so there's a website, sosamerica.org, that argues that every young man and young women who want to volunteer, sometime between 18 and 26, to augment the all-volunteer force, ought to spend a year in the military. It's their choice. Sometime between 18 and 26, you walk up and you salute and you sign up. You don't have to be combat ready as long as you can take care of yourself physically. We will put you in a company of 100, platoons of 30, companies of 100. You'll keep that small unit loyalty. We'll mix educational systems. Or some people will be high school graduates. Some will be some college. Some will be work experience. We'll mix ages. The 23-year-old guy is a lot different than the 17-year-old guy. So that age business will mix up. We'll mix geography. So someone from San Antonio will meet someone from Seattle and New York, et cetera. We'll mix socioeconomic levels. And we'll give them a couple of real sergeants per platoon and a couple of company-grade officers, and we'll send them out to augment as a unit the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Merchant Marine, and we'll have a lot left over to do a host of tasks that this nation requires in terms of our own internal nation building. Anybody think that's a good idea? Write your congressmen and senators and look at SOSAmerica.org 
It's very strange. This is not a draft, by the way. It's more of a European conscription system, like Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Germany. Uh, Germany is going away from it. They'll regret that decision. Uh, Italy. Conrad Adenauer and others have said uh, in Germany, for example, that they didn't care about the military capability. They cared about that they were building citizens. And young men, frankly, more than women. Women are much better than men. Everybody knows that. The, uh, no arguments? <laughs> I didn't think everybody knows that. Uh, but men need that, that self-esteem factor, that thing that says, I served, like you did, to help them, to help them through life, become better citizens, fathers, husbands. Well, that story is in the book. Is that okay, press? What's the third thing we're going to talk about? You've forgotten. He's aging. We're talking about the book. All right, we'll talk about the book. I must tell you, because this is going to sound like a sales spiel, and that's not strange because this is a sales spiel. Uh, <laughs> later in the program, we will chain the doors shut. I don't want you to become alarmed. It's just a marketing ploy. Uh, that I've learned to use with some effect. You are restricted, however, sir, for no more than 100 copies, okay? I just can't do more than that for you today. On the other hand, you guys, if you want 100 copies a person, we've got, got to take care of All right, in serious parlance, and just for a few more minutes, I'm, I'm holding a piece of my soul. As Leo Thorsten has said on the back side, over generously, that your poems helped keep us alive, kept you going and kept us going. Because in those dark days of POW life, that guy knows about as well, the biggest enemy was time. You had to make time an ally. You were running an uncertain race. I was shot down in 1 June 66. I had a wife at home, three-month-old daughter. The daughter would be seven and a half when I walked back in the door. My wife wouldn't know I was alive for years. No contact. In the early years, the treatment was, as well described in so many other books and in the memories of people, brutal. It ameliorated later as the years went on, and Ho Chi Minh died and others, but it was never Geneva Convention standard, and so... The majority of what came in this book was stuff that I created mentally, poems and prose that I, with nothing to write with, in isolation or semi-isolation, created these thoughts mentally, kept them memorized over those many years, tapped them through the walls to my fellows so they would have an exercise to go through and also would help me in case I died up there to have some legacy for that wife and daughter I, I reference. Well, I didn't die up there. And I buried this book for 40 years. This is the 40th anniversary of release. Some of you remember February 12, 1973, and the three additional releases that came after that into the February-March time frame. You know what we really wanted? We wanted, we wanted you to be proud of us. Survival was important, but survival with honor was all important. And survival to be as physically and mentally intact and to be able to come back and compete and contribute 
was a close following objective, not a goal. It was an objective. And so this book that consumed me for all those years got put away until people like John McCain, who did the foreword, and other nice people, some contemporary, some not. Uh, Gary Sinise is a name that a number of you know. He was instrumental and helpful, and a number of guys I lived with who said, all right, do it before you die, or it'll die with you. And so that, with the help of the Pritzker Library and people in New York, have created taps on the walls. How many people know about the tap code? Do you, are you familiar with that? Young people probably aren't, but in the book, it was how we communicated one to another uh, in order to have, and it's in here, about how to do it in case you get incarcerated and you need to talk to the guy next door to you, all right? <clears throat> but uh, the book, to return to it, uh, uh, as I said, was a piece of my soul, and I wasn't confident that I wanted people roaming around in there. So 40 years later, with pressures, we've, we've published this thing. Uh, I recommend you read the front, read the back, and then dive in and out of the poems and prose. And the, the poems are divided into, into four segments, basically. There's a first segment uh, that's called Strapping on a Tailpipe, which is all about the flying experience. And there's a glossary on the back with flying expressions, if that's not common to your, common to your background, so that You'll get the messages that, that resonate. It's much like looking at a picture, by the way. This stuff, this stuff is not, despite my classical education from the University of Chicago, you didn't know that, did you? You didn't introduce me with that. Well, I got it on a drive-by basis. We lived on the south side of Chicago, you know, so that's supposed to be very funny, by the way. You get it on a drive-by basis. You know, I've always loved literature and the first, uh, but I wanted to make sure when I wrote something, that it's like looking at a picture. You should have a reaction to it, plus or minus. You shouldn't have to, and I read too much poetry and literature, or whatever, I feel dumb afterwards. Now, what did the guy say? The literature or the words may be wonderful, but I've got no idea what was said. You won't have that problem in this book. Everything, at least in segment one or level one, is on the surface, and you'll either like it or you won't like it. If you want to dig a little deeper, you'll find out that there is real Petrarchan and Elizabethan sonnet structure, and there's all attention to those kinds of details. But I had a really snooty lady tell me once, she said, well, you're very passe. You know, so much of your stuff rhymes and has identifiable meter. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> I've always liked stuff that has a kind of bounce to it. I do have to apologize. They say I may have and a couple of the poems inadvertently created rap. <laughs> I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a poem in there called, This One's for the Birds. I may have to talk to this side of the audience more. Uh, this one's for the birds, and it talks about a couple woodpeckers that live down in Texas, south of San Antonio. And they've heard about a promised land out west, California, and California redwoods, and the pecan is supposed to be grand out in <laughs> California. So it starts out, uh, well, way down south in the Texas flat where Prickle Pear and Jack Rabbit at live two woodpeckers in a sawed-off stump while looking all the day for something to thump. 
Well, I'm glad there's a literary reaction from this knowledgeable crowd. But you see why I get the bad rap that I've done rap? There's another one called the Ballad of the Cross-Country Flyer. It's, uh, this is a little more technically inclined. He wore a big hack watch and fighter pilot boots. He was liquored. He was leathered. He was lean. He'd arrow end at Vegas. Drank, gamble, chased the toots. He was outbound now. All gauges green. All right. And it goes on in a similar vein. The book's going to make you laugh. It'll make you cry. And it'll make you think, hopefully. That first part I was referencing about strapping on a tailpipe, how many pilots we have in the crowd are people who have flown in airplanes? How many people have flown at dawn? There's a thing called first light flight. It's a sonnet. Pale golden talons stir the eastern sky. Another fledgling day departs the hills. It takes the air as thermal falcons fly, cascading light as carefree first flight thrills. And who attends this noble, soaring birth may marvel from their vantage point on earth but miss so much, not of the sky's domain. But I'm not of the earth. At altitude, I greet the infant day with engine song, my contrails etched on endless morning blue and rare abandon, urging me along. It's here, unfettered brother men enthralled to first light flight, the one judge best of all. So that would be a more serious offering. And again, I'd like, I want you to ride in the cockpit with us in this first part of the book, the strapping on a tailpipe part. Uh, people ask me, what's it like to fly fighter jets or the SR-71, which I was privileged to, to do? And I say, well, it's, it's about the most fun you can have with your clothes on. But I can't, that's more for... Yeah, you got to learn about that stuff, too. The, uh, <laughs> as troublesome as it is. The, uh, the second part is the dark and bitter stuff. Man being influenced by environment, it is the POW and the dark side. You are unable to hold back the floodgates of reality. And so there are stories there, like one that goes to Hanoi Epitaph. When days of dim hope and boredom abound and you half listen to the desperate sound of empty tap code conversation, when, when the heat is so hot and the cold so cold, you think of your youth and how you've, how you've grown old. When the floor is furrowed by tired feet and life slips away neath the pounding beat, you trudge on in the dark desolation. And it goes on in a similarly cheerful way for a number of stanzas. Uh, and it ends up when the years have passed, the many Decembers, and no one cares, and no one remembers the sound of your voice, your face, or your name.
So you dream of steel chargers, sky is tomorrow. Mostly you dream, but just so long. But you dream without hope of reward. Make you laugh, make you cry. Uh, there was a place, by the way, for what we will call prison humor, and I reflect some of it in the book. In the end, humor gets you going when everything else fails. And we had optimists and pessimists with us. And perhaps some of you are aware about the difference. The pessimists thought we were going to die up there, and they wouldn't even send our bodies home. The optimists were sure they'd send our bodies home. So that was... <laughs> The third section, the third section is uh, all about Christmas and holidays and family. And again, it's, it, it got to be expected that I would do the Christmas poem. And uh, working with no writing materials and just doing this all mentally and then keeping it memorized literally took months. We also tapped through the walls languages. I taught, I speak enough French to be dangerous in bars, so I could, very dangerous in bars, excuse me. The, uh, and. Uh, tapped on the walls and learned Spanish that way, and we would uh, share information in order to, again, make time an ally, to run that uncertain race. So in the Christmas time, uh, you had to, with its conflicting emotions, as we all know, in the holiday season, uh, so I would write stuff. One thing was the other Christmas, which took the night before Christmas, but put it in a military context. Uh, or another one, which was a part of Christmas, when Jack Frost starts a warming hearts, and old man Smith ain't mean when reindeer fly and you can buy a purple evergreen, and something's up and you know what, it's, it's all a part of Christmas. And it goes on for many, many stanzas. I do remember one Christmas, uh, many years out, you tried to hold family mentally and emotionally at arm's length, but when you write this stuff, you have to open it up. And I thought about that three-month-old daughter, and I imagined one night that she would be asleep in bed and then awaken Christmas Eve, and she would hear her mother, Myrna, walking, crying, and the daughter would talk or think, and then there would be a passage for Myrna, and then I would answer from afar. The poem is called, Mommy, Where Is My Daddy? Uh, I'm not going to recite it here because I don't want to. Uh, but I can tell you when I passed it through the walls as the Christmas poem for the year, I got this very weak tap back after the guys had memorized it. And a few hours later, uh, the guys called us up to, and said, gee, that was really fun, that Mommy, Where Is My Daddy uh, poem. Uh, we're, uh, we're arranging a suicide pact in here, and we'd like, to, <laughs> we'd like to know if you'd like to join us, you know. So. Merry Christmas. Uh, the last poem in the book is an epic. It's 80 pages long, and it writes about all the stuff that's important for us to consider. Politics, sex, religion, love, war, peace, renewal, renewal, self-renewal. There is no more important task in your life 
than to keep renewing yourself, to keep invigorating your own spirit. And by golly, if it's important at the individual level, it's important at the community level. It's essential at the community level, important at the city, state, and certainly national level. Very hard for individuals and or communities or nations to do. It is a lifelong task. Anybody know who Sisyphus was? So it talks about all that stuff. Anybody know who Sisyphus was? The Greek guy who was challenged for eternity to roll the rock up the hill, and then the rock would come back rolling down the hill, and he'd have to get the rock and roll it back up the hill. Albert Camus, a French philosopher, wrote a book called The Myth of Sisyphus. He said that Sisyphus was a happy man. He had something to do. I think he was well short of the mark. I think the job, <laughs> the job is to get the rock up and over the hill, right? And the rock rolls down the other side, and what do you see? What do you see? Nothing. You see another hill. The essence of the human condition, and I commend it to you, and we'll conclude with this thought, the essence of the human condition is to push rocks. And if we keep pushing rocks, if we, as I said earlier, keep marching, we pick them up and lay them down, then we got a future. And we got a future that rests on your shoulders and your shoulders and your shoulders. And we do it as a body politic confident, again, in our own skills and our own abilities, that unlike the World War II generation, which was not the greatest generation, it was a great generation. But if we give them the appellation the greatest generation, that means... Our best days are behind us. Our best days have to be days that you create, days that we create. So we keep marching together. We push rocks together. Thanks for letting me push a few verbal rocks with you today, and I'll open up to questions. You're very great. Thank you. Over to you guys. Questions from the floor. Or... Or we'll go immediately into the signing-selling phase. Turn that thing off, will you, Don? I can take the questions from the floor, and I'll repeat them. The signing-selling phase, we'll do it up here on the stage afterwards. I can, uh, like a good guy, take credit cards, bogus checks, and you know, I'll give you a book. <laughs> Send it to me later. Green stamps. Yeah, green stamps. It's 25 bucks, and I'll sign them and personalize them. Question from the back. Yes, ma'am. Stand up and shout. You got He's got to be able to hear you down here. I have been uh, in love with my wife since I was 17 years old. And one of the things that young men do or should do is be inspired to verse. Uh, but in reality, I've, I started out with I'm a great lover of the liberal arts. I went to Navy Pier, University of Illinois, in Chicago for one semester after graduation from high school on the south side. But they found me out, and I had to leave. Uh, and then I went to, as we would say, a Lutheran church school, uh, Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois, for a year. I missed going to the Air Force Academy uh, for the class of 62. Uh, but they found me out after a year, and so I had to go to the Air Force Academy, and uh, they didn't find me out for 37 years, so it was fine, you know. And uh, now active in business, uh, and this is really not business. This has been 
in, in some respects, it's a willful acceptance, but it's kind of forced on me, and I've got to go back and do the very things I didn't want to do 40 years ago, and that's be a professional POW and rehash all that stuff, but hopefully put it in a greater context. So the love of literature has been lifelong. Uh, still is, and I still write things. I've got a couple of books still working, other books. Uh, one will have aspects of poetry to it. And I never buy a card. I always give something, you know, on the holidays or anniversaries or whatever to to uh, family. And I've got two girls. Fighter pilots always have girls. <laughs> it's God's revenge. <laughs> and and His great blessing. And His great blessing. Did that answer your question? Uh, if you notice, people, you know, it's, it's like opera. Poetry pervades our life. We love the mellifluence of the words we, or the edge of the words. We love the, the meter and the flow. Uh, and so even though I would wager to say that 90% of the men in this room anyway have never bought a book of poetry. Of course, they've never had one as good as this. They, uh, <laughs> Uh, and women are more attuned to it because they, as I already said, they're better than the men anyway. But uh, so that's it. But I think uh, if you note that the, the preponderance of poets, notwithstanding some wonderful woman poets, uh, tend to be men. So I think there's a dichotomy there. All right. Another question. Yes. From Trinidad, the sergeant who's going to try to get a commission or working on that, master's degree already, right? Wonderful. Yes. They can't hear you. Oh, I have two questions. Who invented the tap code and did everybody already know it? Yeah. Who, who invented the tap code? It's in the book, but Carlisle Smitty Harris, who was shot down in 1965, had taken some extra instruction at Stead Air Force Base, and as a thing he really didn't want to do, they taught him the tap code, and he came in and taught it to everyone else. Again, it's in the book as to that story. As, and as validated as I can. And we would either get it by the old way of having one letter tapped through the wall. Remember, we were enclosed in bricked-up cells with no ventilation and either alone or maybe with one, sometimes two other guys, uh, but mostly isolation or semi-isolation. Or sometimes people would take a risk and shout it out. Arrange the matrix, the alphabet, five by five. Drop out K. You know, G is... One, two, one, two, two, two. So you'll see in there. And at night we would sign off, which stands for? God bless you. God bless you, GBU. And uh, we could do 30 words a minute. So if somebody's tapping to you, you give them up. And that's says, hey, I got it, and you press on. Or if you didn't understand, you'd give them one of that. I don't understand things. So that's also laughter. This is crying or, you know, bad joke, you know. So anyway, you'd be amazed the range of, of emotions you could get through tapping. Well, of course, if you got caught, especially in the early years, then you got hammered because it was illegal for communication. But we needed to pass our names. Most of us weren't known to the outside, and we wanted each other to carry the names so someone would know you were alive. We needed it for chain of command, and we needed needed it to bolster one another's spirits and that survive with honor business. Does that answer your question? Somebody else, how are we doing on time? What time is it? I don't have a clock. What time is it? It's a quarter of two. Quarter of two. 
I know you guys have got to smoke out of here about quarter to two. We're going to lose all that commercial opportunity. So just tell your teachers to buy you a couple hundred books and it'll be fine. Yeah, question. Uh, is the book available on Amazon.com? Yes, but you can spend more money today and get it from me. Uh, <laughs> Well, why the hell do you think I'm here? You know, I mean, my wife thinks in terms of renovated bathrooms. I mean, a lot of it goes to the Pritzker Military Library, not for profit, and we get a small piece. You'd be surprised how small. Uh, but, uh, yes, you can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can order it. Uh, it's been reviewed by all those nice folks at New York Times and Chicago Tribune, and we've been on C-SPAN and... I get to sit with Gretchen on Fox and Friends and all that stuff. So it's, uh, that's been fun. That, and, I, and interaction, frankly, is fun. Uh, but it's going to die a natural death probably in another six months. And it's already gone on longer. It published February 12th of this year, which was the 40th anniversary of, of release. Another question, then we'll – yes, sir, Guy. First assignment when you came back. First assignment coming back, besides going back to get requalified in fighters or in, in trainers. I'd never flown the T-38. We were T-Bird guys. So I went back to Randolph, as I suspect you did, and got into the T-38. Went back out to George, where both my daughters were born, George Air Force Base in California, the one after the war, uh, Megan. By the way, the one born before the war, she had this, this dream that one day I would walk her to school. And there was a picture of that. And I had the same dream. And the Tribune captured that picture of me on a first day back walking to school because the kids, you know, as kids will, said, hey, well, you don't have a father. He's, you know. So I walked her all the way into the class. Thirty-five, forty years later, we're into a major exhibition associated with this book, and they've unearthed that picture. And my daughter walks in, and they've got a big banner holding. It's that picture of me walking her to school. And she, of course, collapses into my arms, crying big, tough guy like me, you know, unmoved by such things. I <laughs> collapse in her arms crying. <laughs> so anyway, but, but she's more like me today. And the one we had after the war, Megan, is more like her mother. So go figure, you know. What the hell does that do with what you were asking me? Well, <laughs> Somebody give me, oh, wait, wait, that, oh, that, that, that went, back, that went back to George. Did F-4s, went back operational. Uh, and stayed operational in and out of Paul Mill things. Got to be a White House fellow and a few other things. But uh, the great joy was commanding the hat in the ring in the F-15 world. That was asked over lunch. Uh, wonderful airplane. Of course, the first fighter wing at Langley. Now with flying Raptors. Uh, we've got to do something about the force structure circumstance in the Air Force. We're spending more and more money getting less and less force structure. It impacts the national deal. I don't believe it when these people say it takes joint to win a war. Air power can do it all by itself if we are sufficiently brutal. Kurt LeMay late in life and I got to be pretty close. And I'll leave you with a verity of life, and I think then you guys have got to get out of here probably. But uh, we, we ought not to go to war for casual reason. And we ought to do so with congressional approval. But once we go, we better be prepared, if the game is worth the candle, to create the kinds of violence that militaries are designed in the first place to create. We're not very good at building things. We're very good at destroying things. So LeMay's dictum of those many years ago to Major General Borling was, 
Besides, he said, don't forget that the business of strategic air command, I was a DO by this time, strange for a fighter pilot to make that migration into SAC. I blame it all on Jack Chain, for those of you who know Jack, but, uh, who took me there. But uh, wonderful the guy that he is, great leader and wonderful experience. But he said, don't forget the business of strategic air command is the tankers. That's how we project force, tankers. And at one time, as a DO, I had operational control of 535 tankers. And now we're on train to get a new 176 tankers. Tankers are, the, tankers are what gets us there. But he also said about warfare. Wars are about killing people. You kill enough of them, they'll quit fighting. Those are the stakes for a free nation, a nation of principle. A, a nation, and I'll add on this latter, end on this last thought. A nation that is very much akin to what Jacqueline Kennedy asked Jack Kennedy on their wedding night. She asked him, what kind of man are you? You're wondering how I'm going to get out of this. Uh, she asked him that. And he said that he was an idealist without illusions. Among the other things I pray for after I finish my morning exercises, my meditations, if you will, praying for wisdom, I pray that we will always be a nation where we are idealists and yet without illusions. If I've been helpful in maybe lowering and then raising a shade here or two in the course of our comments, uh, I'll be satisfied. I can tell you I tried. Thanks very much.